Hi, everybody. As you've probably already heard, Leonard Nimoy has passed on. Mr. Spock, of course. And we're all feeling kind of unhappy here at the review. Wonderful actor. Amazingly indelible uh, character he created in Mr. Spock. Died at 83 yesterday, February 27th. We feel that the best way to celebrate Leonard Nimoy's life would be to continue on with the review and see all his adventures that he, the actor, did not do, but he, the character, carried on. Exactly. After his passing. Yeah, definitely what Nimoy brought to his character it has, I think, in many ways lived on in the character in, in all forms. Whether it's Quinto's performances, his reinterpretation of the character, or even these comic books. You know, obviously his face, but many of the things that Nimoy brought to the character carries on in the various incarnations. Right. So, best wishes to his family. So, we all miss him. We're all going to miss him. And let's get back to the review. Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc., Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 189, recorded January 3rd, 2015. Happy New Year, Ken. Happy New Year, Donovan. So, what did you think about last episode's Gold Key Comic Book Theater? I thought it was fun. For me, it was fun. Hopefully, others find it, you know, listenable. Right. But uh, we, I think we all had fun doing it, so... Yeah, it was good. And I'm glad that we got uh, some folks that uh, have not joined us before on board, so that was nice. Right. And quite talented. Yes. They were, they were making us look like rank amateurs, I'll tell you. Definitely me. I, uh, I, uh, I guess acting no. w- w- was not in my forte. Well, anyway. I think, that, I think the computer voice was masterful. Yeah, she was great. Yes. Excellent. So hopefully uh, we'll be doing that more often than we have been doing, just because we need to get through some of those gold keys. So anybody listening and you want to be part of it next time, let me know as soon as possible, and we'll make sure you get included. Yes, please do. It is a lot of fun. really is. It is. But today, today, my friend, we are going to do three random IDW issues. Not 100% random, I come to find out speaking to you before the recording, but they are seemingly random. Right. So they're they're all good quality. I, I do. I enjoyed all of them. Yep. Yep. No, they're all good. And, and they're from different eras or, uh, yeah, different timelines and also different, uh, you know, publishing years. So we have the first up is Captain's Log Sulu, which mm-hmm. I think came out in 2010. 2010, right? Yep. And then we have uh, Q, which came out. Uh, when did that one come out? Two th- oh, 2009. Oh, if so I got this right. Yep, 2009. So that one actually came out first. Yeah. Huh. Oops. 
And then we have Star Trek Special Flesh and Stone, which just came out in 2014. Right, in July. Good chunk of time in between the publishings of most of these. Right. And all good artwork, good writing. Yeah, I love the IDW stuff. Yeah. It's, it, it's, nice. it's nice that IDW has the franchise now in comic books. Uh, for Star Trek, because they do quite a good job. They they take their work seriously, and some of their writers are obviously uh, fans, or at least I assume they are. Right. Yeah, you you say that, but, I mean, aside from that first run of Marvel, I mean, I, I think that all the publishers that have had the Star Trek license, they hire people that are fans of the franchises when they're doing the stories, I think. Yeah, and I'm not saying the others aren't. It's just it seems like these in particular. Many of the stories, the IDWs, even the ones today, call upon things from the past, right. incarnations, um, quite handily. So, right. I, th- I think it helps that they have the rights to all of Star Trek and not just one franchise or another, which you know Malibu, DC, and all the other ones have, has always kind of had to fight with because they may have rights to one character but not the others and things yeah, like that. Yeah, that's a bunch of garbage. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah, it, yeah. That, that's really unfortunate that that licensing had done things like that in the past. Uh, but yeah, this this is great. This, is, this from from a comic book standpoint, I think this is a Star Trek golden era. That's high praise, my friend. It is high praise, but really, I mean, I I I, I like the majority of the comics we've done in the past. Uh, I just find IDW to be more consistently high quality and likable. Right. right. Not all perfect, mind you, but... And for I don't know if it's just licensing from CBS or what, but they get the opportunity to do more crossovers and mix-ups, so... Yes. Uh, which, which I really enjoy. I, right. I enjoy Doctor Who. I enjoy, you know, the upcoming Planet of the Apes crossover, which I think came out <laughs> yesterday. I haven't got did it was it is it out already? All right, yeah, I got it. Came out this week. I got to go and get that. Yeah, same here. So uh, I don't know. I just something's changed in the licensing or or whatever that, that have loosened up the constraints that I think uh, you know Marvel got away with it a little bit with the X Men crossover, but aside from that, you know none of the publishers have been able to cross it over with anything else. Right, and of course, right now we're in the middle of a big crossover between uh, the reboot J.J. Abrams Star Trek and Deep Space Nine. So I look forward to us picking that back up again um, yeah. next week, I believe. Next week, right. Yeah, we'll yeah. do th- uh, ongoing 36, 37, 38 next yeah. week. And that's a cool crossover. I'm looking forward to that. I mean, the whole idea, that it, I hope I'm not giving away anything, but definitely appears to be what is the next-gen Deep Space Nine world like based on the reboot that took place when Nero came back in time. Right. That's really interesting to me, I think, to uh, many Star Trek fans. Yeah, I haven't actually read the three newest ones, so... I haven't either, but okay. I just, just that first one that, that teed it off, right. that we already did. Cool. All right, something to look forward to next week. Yes. But for this week, Captain Sulu. Captain's Log, Sulu. Now, we've already done some of the Captain Logs ones. I think we did at least Pike. Right. Uh, we Have we done any of the Harrowman or anything like that? I I don't think we did Harrowman. Yeah, I don't think we did. And I find this really interesting because, you know, we've we've seen some things with Sulu in the captain's chair. Was it Star Trek Six? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so we've seen some things, but this is a full story with Sulu in the captain's chair. So I'm I'm looking forward to this one. Right, me too. And I'll tell you right now, and I and I think I've said it in the past. If they were to do a live action Star Trek TV show, yeah, whether it be on Showtime or CBS or whatever, I think that it would be a great opportunity to do a Sulu Captain of the Excelsior TV series. So you don't go ahead. So you don't think he's too old, George Takei? Not not George Takei. I'm talking about uh, John Cho. Oh. Oh, 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 sorry, I was completely going down the wrong path. No, the rebooted, the rebooted Sulu. Okay, and then make him look a little older or something? I don't even have to do that, just... Well, he's way too young. So is, so is Chris Pine. I know, but Kirk proved himself in extreme circumstances. I think you could have, this, you could do the same thing with... Well, you, you, sure, you can do anything, it's just... You know, I mean, look at how old Picard is and earning the captaincy and probably in real life. You know, people are a little older when they become captain of a of a ship in the Navy or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, all, all, you know, giving away to all these kids, the captaincy, I don't know. I don't know. You I could, think, but. I think it would be interesting. It would, it would give everybody who wanted a Sulu series from way back when what they wanted. And right. And it could be set in the same J.J. Abrams universe. True. John Cho, he hasn't had the best luck on his sitcom choices as of late. Uh, his newest one with Karen Gillian just got canceled a couple of weeks back. So, what's he going to be doing next? Oh, week? what? I don't even know about that show. What what show is that? Uh, Selfie. Uh, oh, they're in that. Yeah. Well, that whole that whole series. I only read about the series. I didn't realize they were in it. That sounded like a dumb idea for a series, but. Right, and it seems like the public has agreed with you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, cool. But then he was also in that uh, series with Matthew Perry. And it, it lasted maybe one or two seasons. Oh. It wasn't horrible, but yeah, uh, I, I, I never saw that one. He keeps trying to do TV, and it keeps kicking him back out. So, well, I thought he do a franchise that's got a, a fan base. Well. Yeah, and uh, I don't know how far into it, because I stopped watching about halfway through the season, but he was in Sleepy Hollow, and oh, that was that was fairly pop. I mean, it's it got a second season, but uh, he probably rolled off of it in the first season. Oh, really? He was a, he was a cop. He was one of the deputies or something like that, uh, who, was, that. who was, was possessed by the, uh, by the evil stuff. Yeah. So he, he did pretty good in that, and that show at least got two seasons. Mm. But, yes, right. good, good point on those other ones. I didn't even okay. realize he was in that Matthew Perry one. Okay. Yeah, what was it called? Mr. Sun? No, not Mr. Sun. I don't know. It was the one where he was a sports radio uh, – Matthew Perry was a sports radio guy that had to go to counseling or something. Oh, for anger management or something? Right. Oh. So he, was, uh, he was upset that his wife had died and – Taking out on people. Oh, hmm. it, it was it was a good show. Hmm. Maybe I should have a bunch made of the kooky time. characters. Kooky, kooky. Okay. Anyways, uh, so shall we move on? Please. So uh, this is Captain's Log Sulu, published date January 2010. Creative team is writer Scott and David Tipton, art Frederica Manfredi, colors by Andrea. Priorini, 
Color Assist by Chiara Cinebro. Letters by Neil Yutaki. Editor is Scott Dunbuyer. Cover A features Captain Sulu standing straight and tall with some kind of Japanese warrior statue behind him. A shogun, perhaps? A powerful-looking figure in armor and a mask. Art by David Messina and colors by Giovanna Nero. Cover B is a photo cover that shows Sulu from one of the movies. He is seated on the bridge in what is likely the captain's chair. The story begins with Sulu, who is fencing with his new first officer, Mr. Cipriano. Sulu is thinking to himself how much he loves this sport. Two people pitted against each other, with only the application of force via a thin blade deciding the outcome. Though he does not think it directly, you get the feeling he sees this as an analogy to command of a starship. Sulu wins again, but Cipriano is keen for another go. They are interrupted by a call from the bridge telling Sulu of an incoming message from Admiral Renshaw. Sulu says he will take it in his quarters and invites Cipriano to take part. In his plant-adorned quarters, the captain and his first officer hear their orders to patch up a diplomatic row involving the Tholians. Sulu is taken aback given his previous experience with the race and the fact that they are quick to anger and cryptic in their communications. The Admiral tells them the Tholians object to a new Federation colony called Mirabi Five, that is completely within Federation space, but a bit too close to the Tholian border for their liking. Intelligence says the row is more precipitated by internal Tholian politics as opposed to any real external threat perceived by them. Starfleet wants Sulu to lay on the charm and assure them there is no aggressive intentions with the new colony. While engaged with the Tholians, he is to reaffirm the Federation's non-aggression pact with them. They are to proceed to the Yell 4 border station, where they will meet with Tholian representatives in orbit. A secured diplomatic briefing is being transmitted to Sulu's communications officer as they speak. The Admiral tells Sulu this should not be a difficult mission, but to make sure he arrives on time. Sulu explains to Cipriano that the Tholians place an almost manic value on punctuality. They discuss how they will meet the Tholians over a comm channel since they cannot exist in the low temperatures that humans can and we cannot live within the extremely high temperatures that they require. Cipriano says he is aware of Sulu dealing with the Tholians in the past. The captain briefs his number one on the details of the events that took place during the Taws episode, The Tholian Web. Sulu says they barely escaped The Tholian Web. They go to the bridge and are informed by Lieutenant Rand that they are receiving distress calls from the USS Shepard. Its engines are damaged beyond repair due to a solar flare. They are requesting immediate evacuation. Sulu orders course set for the Shepard, Warp 8. Sulu knows this rescue will endanger their timely arrival to meet the Tholians, but he has no choice. The rescue is trickier than expected, particularly when the Oberth-class USS Shepard suddenly changes into a Constitution-class starship. They successfully complete the rescue and head for their meeting with the Tholians. When they arrive at the Yell 4, they are 37 minutes late. They find that VL4 is trapped in a circular Tholian web. 
Mr. Cipriano asks what the point of this is. It's an automated station. No one is on the planet. Captain Sulu says long-range scans are picking up a dozen or more vessels heading to Mirabi 5. The Tholians are sending a very loud message. Sulu orders best possible speed to Mirabi 5. Rand establishes communication with the Tholian fleet, and Captain Sulu attempts to explain why they were late to the meeting. The Tholian commander says their lateness disrespects them and demonstrates the Federation's lack of interest to resolve this matter. Therefore, they are resolving the matter themselves. They will remove the colony. Transmission ended. Sulu sinks into his chair, tilts his head forward, and goes silent. His number one asks for the captain's orders. When none come, Cipriano starts thinking aloud about calling for reinforcements, but says they could only arrive in time for a counter-assault. Sulu says no. This is a diplomatic mission, and he is not going to give up on that yet. Sulu finds out the Tholian fleet is moving at warp 5, so he orders the Excelsior to warp 8 or better. They must pass the Tholian fleet and get in front of them. They raise shields and ready phasers and photon torpedoes, but the captain says he does not anticipate needing them. They pass the Tholian fleet and position the Excelsior between them and Mirabi 5. The Tholian commander opens a channel to the Excelsior and demands they withdraw. Sulu responds, saying no one will be withdrawing, apologizes yet again for being late, and asks whether the Tholian respect for mercy is greater than the Federation's respect for punctuality. After a pause, Sulu goes on to say, or you can continue your course, and the Excelsior will fly right down your throat. Sulu orders Helm to match the lead ship move for move. The two forces continue to move closer, Closer. Closer yet. Finally, the Tholian commander backs down, saying mercy is an acceptable excuse for Sulu's tardiness. They will return to Viel and commence discussions if Sulu is in agreement. Sulu says, we are in agreement, and closes the channel. Cipriano congratulates the captain on his bluff. Sulu says it was no bluff. They had shields up, and though the Tholian energy web is an impressive weapon... The Excelsior outclasses their ships in most other points. They likely would have beaten the Tholian fleet despite their numerical superiority. The Tholians were looking for a way out that would save face. Sulu gave it to them. Knowing how to apply force to just the correct point of your opponent works for the situation as well as for fencing. The end. The end. The end. Yeah. Captain Sulu. Yeah, do you think you look like George Takei? Um, uh, 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 not as much as would be good. I mean, I thought he looked pretty much like Sulu on the cover. Oh, on the cover. Yeah. Inside, at times, yes, and at other times, no. Right. I mean, he looked like a skinny, old, older guy. And he would have been older by this point, and that's fine. It's just that some of them made him look really old. Right. Yeah, it was a little inconsistent for me, too. Yeah. Whereas Janus ran, they just made her look really good. I was... I was yeah, she wasn't looking... went a little too far on that one. <clears throat> right. 
Now, now there, I, I think on the first page we see her, there's a close-up of her face, and she looks, you know, pretty mature and around a face. And then when the next panel shows her physically, you know, she's not that bad. I mean, she's not that heavy. But, uh, yeah, they didn't pull any punches on, uh, on how they depicted them looking older. Right. Speaking of art, how about the warp? Uh, there's a nice big panel showing the Excelsior uh, at warp speed. With the rainbow? With the rainbow. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I mean, it was a little, you know, with the, with the different uh, what, blue, red shifting, whatever, that caused the rainbow effect, which they got that out of the movies, right? The Toss right. movies? Yeah. It's a little gimmicky, but I liked it. It worked for me. Uh, it does me too. I, I, I always enjoyed that depiction of warp. Right. And how about the fact that that the actual shape of the Excelsior is mm, is rather ill-defined because it's it's moving that fast. I guess uh, just in those depictions, or it, on that one panel, on that one particular well, panel. They do it a couple of times, so I don't know which one. You're talking about the one where um... the one that takes up like half the page. Well, okay, it takes up a quarter of the page. Yeah, it's the first time we see it going at warp. It's the, so right, it's the big right one. after he's talking to um, about the supernova. Uh, yes. Have, yes. Been, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, you can't even tell that's the Excelsior. Right. I mean, you can kind of tell it's a starship, but you can only see one nacelle really, and you can see a saucer section, but I don't see the engineering section or the other or the other nacelle. Right. It's I, I I like it. Yeah, it's good. And then a couple pages later, they do it again um, at the top of a page, and it shows. A little more definition as to the silhouette of the right. Excelsior. Yep, that looks cool too. Yeah. Um, not as much with the streaky little rainbow things, but uh, the Excelsior itself looks cool. Right. Yeah, I like that one too. Now, overall, I really liked all the artwork. Uh, there's only two circumstances in this in the story that I really have a problem with the artwork. Okay. May I tell you what they are? Please do. All right, so it shows the uh, Excelsior going to save this. I think it's an Oberth type yes, class you're right. ship. Uh-huh. And when they get there, you see it on the view screen. Yeah, is that type of ship? Yeah. Next page, it's a Constitution class ship. <laughs> okay, I, I completely agree. It was like, what? Wait a minute. Right, and they already had kind of the flashback panel earlier with uh, you know him remembering. Uh, the Enterprise saving the Defiant, and both of those are Constitution-class ships. Right. So I was like, is this supposed to be that type of flashback again? But no, it's not. It, it's just a mistake. I, it, right. I mean, it makes no it makes no sense unless it was a mistake. Right. Which is very surprising. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, I mean, did somebody make a mistake in here, but the editor knew it? But like... Well, we don't have the time or money. We're not going to make publishing, so we're just going with it. I mean, do you think it really passed through the editors and stuff? I don't think so. I hope not. Well, and that's not the only one. There's another one. On the back of the Excelsior's wall. Oh, yeah, right. It's the big blueprint of the Enterprise A. I I agree. And you actually, didn't you uh, send a a post out on the website on that or something? Uh, I think I posted something on Facebook. Oh, Facebook, okay. Yeah. Right. But anyway. So I, I agree. I agree. Why is that there? 
Yeah, I meant to go back and rewatch Star Trek VI yeah. um, to see if maybe it truly is in the background of the Excelsior right. in Star Trek VI, but I think I would have noticed it if it was. Yeah. And I didn't have a chance to do it. Well, like you say in your post, I guess with tongue-in-cheek, maybe he just really likes that uh, <laughs> that class of Starship. Right. Yeah, it's like a screensaver. Could you put that on my desktop? There you go, in the back. Exactly. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at a picture from uh, Star Trek Six, and it's definitely an Excelsior. Oh, actually, this is from Flashback, um, the Voyager episode, and it's an Excelsior-class blueprint in the background, yeah. not a Constitution-class. Which makes a lot more sense. Right. So, ha-ha! Ha-ha, I say! Yeah. And, and there's a lot of panels with that. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not like a one-time issue. They're just doing it a lot. Okay, well, I'm sure somebody, Brian or somebody, will be writing and saying, well, the you know that, that had some kind of a precedence somewhere that we're just not finding. Yeah, there's not a ton of uh, Sulu, Captain of the Excelsior yeah. episodes. Mm, I, I agree. From. And that's why I, I like this, uh, this comic. Right. It's, no, one, really it's one of several reasons I like this comic quite a bit. All right, anything else about the artwork? I liked all the plants in Sulu's quarters. That was a nice callback to his... Uh, uh, botany days? Exactly, to his, his amateur botany days, yes. Yeah, now he was, a, he was a botanist in the first episode he was in, right? And then, like, the next episode he was a helmsman? Oh, was he? Oh, I, didn't, I don't remember that. So, in one of the early... Early episodes, he's actually called a botanist, the ship's botanist. Uh, he's definitely in sciences, and I thought it was botany. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So, what was was that actually in where no man's gone before? Because yes. there is there's one point where the yep. senior officers are being introduced. Right. Yep. That's it. Okay. Yeah, and he's wearing the blue tunic of science. Oh, very nice, very nice. Okay. So not only an amateur, but he actually is uh, is uh, skilled in it. I mean, he yeah, was I actually might be wrong about it. What his his he might not have been a botanist. I don't know. I just remember him being a science officer. Okay. During that episode. Okay. Um, I thought it was kind of odd how chin beards seem to be very popular on the Excelsior for men. Uh, is there is there a few people with chin beards? Well, Cipriano, you know he's got the chin beard going, right? And then so does the helmsman, right? Now Cipriano, he's never been in any of the. Um, he wasn't in Flashback or Star Trek Six, was he? I I've never heard of him. But, but I've never heard the was. name. Oh, was he? Okay, yeah. cool. And did he have the uh, the chin beard? Yeah, I think so. Cool. Okay. So that was from Star Trek Six, maybe? And flashback. Probably more flashback than Star Trek Six. Oh, okay, okay. Cool. I guess last thing to say is you know how they have the Tholian web actually around that planet? It's like So the field perpetuates itself without any ships being in the loop. Is that right? Um because from the old TV show episode, they they were showing the 
they were always showing the Tholian ships attached to the box that they were making. Right. Around the Enterprise. So I don't remember I don't remember from that episode actually seeing the ships detached from the energy webbing. So you think they just have to sit there and produce it the whole time? Well, I mean what's what's producing the energy? I I thought the ship had to provide power, but who knows? It's Star Trek. Whatever. Well this far out from orbit, you could have a ship in there and, and just it blend in with the rest of it. Yeah, you could. You could. Uh I'm just asking. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. They, they they don't show any indication necessarily from the drawing, but there's the whole back of the planet you don't see, and like you right. say, it might be small enough that it doesn't show up from a distance. Yeah, good point. So, just wondering. And I mean, the, the, there's a lot of holes in this uh, in this web that I think you could just fly ships out of. <laughs> exactly, I agree. Uh, speaking of ships, what do you think about the new Tholian ship design? I'd never seen that before. Have you? No. I thought it was kind of cool. You yeah, know. I, I don't know if I've watched the the redo of uh, the Tholian Web episode with the special the new special effects. I mean, do they look like that? Maybe. I do not remember them looking anything like this. I I, I thought the ships were pretty much the same design. So they're just little blobs of tri- little triangle blobs. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like two triangles put back to back on their short side, and then one of them is really longish. One of the triangles is longish. So yeah, that's how I describe them. Hmm. Or, or actually, if you look at it from more like a three-dimensional standpoint, you probably have the better description, because there's like three of them, right? It's like, well, whatever. We all right. know what it looks like. Yeah, the classic like one. arrowhead type thing. Kinda, yeah. yeah. Which is unique. I, I kind of like the uniqueness of it. Uh, I kind of like these. These look pretty cool. Yeah, they look they look uh, vicious. Vicious. Lion in formation like that. Right. And you would think that they would, over time, you know, have some changes in design. You know, right. like Excelsior, completely different, or very different. A more advanced design than the original Constitution class Enterprise. So it was good to see some, some movement. Right. On ship design. Yeah, it would be them. cool to actually see those spinning the web. Which I don't think we ever actually see, right? Uh, well, yeah, definitely not in this comic. Maybe these aren't the ones that spin the web, and the ones that spin the web are still... Triangle guys? Planet. Yeah. Could be. Could be. Hmm. Yeah. What did you think of the Tholians themselves, the way they were depicted? I, I thought it looked cool. I thought it was very much in keeping with the Taz episode. Right. Yeah, it looks more like the Taz version than the Enterprise version. Oh, yeah, it doesn't look like the Enterprise version at all. Then also the uh, – <laughs> what was that Tholian one where uh, where they actually showed their full bodies walking around? Yeah, that was an Enterprise. I don't know the episode. Oh, I was talking about – I was talking about a comic. Oh, oh, oh. But – oh, so Enterprise actually showed their full bodies? Yeah, it was actually the Mirror Darkly episodes. Where they had, a, where they had the Gorns too? Right, they had the Gorn and the Tholians and uh, – they actually beam a Tholian onto the Enterprise, and they, they sit there and watch it shatter. Oh, right. They're, they're evil. Right, 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 right. I remember that now. Huh. Anyway, yeah, that's the last thing I have to say about it. Good issue. That was a good It was a very good episode. Yeah. Issue. Yeah. I don't think I have any other comments. Nope. Cool. 
All right, shall we move on to the next one? Please, a little more Alien Spotlight. Right. So we just uh, – I really wanted a Alien Spotlight Tholian, but unfortunately there isn't one. So I chose to do the Alien Spotlight Q because we're doing the whole – we just had the Q Trelane episode not too long mm-hmm. ago, and we're doing the Q in the uh, the J.J. Abrams version of Star Trek. Right. So I thought it would be a, a nice fit. Cool. The Q Gambit. Yes. Why not? Right. So this one is entitled Star Trek Alien Spotlight Q. Uh, I guess it's number one. The writer was Scott Tipton and David Tipton. Art by Alina Casagrande. Color by Ilra Travasi. Color assist by 2B Studio. Letters by Neil Yutaki. Edits by Scott Dunbar. Cover A was Joe Corny. Cover B is Ellen... Elena. Color B is Elena Casagrande. Cover B has the colors by Ilra Travasi. And then there's the Retailer Incentive Virgin cover by Joe Cornelli. Cover A shows Q standing in the center of the Enterprise D bridge with his index finger extended as if giving the order, make it so, to Data. Riker sitting in his normal commander chair behind him. Cover B shows Picard in a first contact uniform, staring into the mirror, and finds Q's image staring back at him with a wry wink. And then cover C is the same as cover A, but without the titles and barcode. So the story starts off about a month after the Enterprise E was prepared from its adventures and time during first contact and perhaps the X-Men crossover, assuming that this might be the same continuity. Picard notes to himself that the recent Borg attack has brought back feelings of his time under their control. He enters his quarters and finds Q there. Q then states that the reason why he's never been able to understand what it's like to be human is that everyone always knows that he's still Q, even during his random times when he had no power. He comes up with a new experiment. He will become Picard. Everyone will still think that he is Picard and not suspect that he's really Q. With a snap of his fingers, it is done, and Picard is now a spectator to his own body, without control, just as he was with the Collective. Q enters the meeting with the senior staff. He makes a misstep by asking Riker to give an update on the project that Picard should have already known that Data was assigned to. Picard tells Q... Picard's a little disembodied head above Q's face... Picard tells Q that Riker already suspects that something is wrong. Data's briefing describes how two species are fighting over the same planet, the insectoid Pentagat and the gaseous beings Ganel. The Enterprise was brought there to arbitrate. Q's comment of let them figure it out does not go well with Riker, forcing Q to pretend that it was only a joke. After the meeting, Jordy asks for a quick meeting with the captain. Q allows it and seems annoyed that Geordi is asking him for advice on a crewman who's not giving him his all. Q states that Geordi should tell the crewman to do better, and therefore the problem is solved. Geordi leaves a little confused by this advice. Soon the delegates from the warring planets arrive. They both want the planet that's in question. The Pentagat want it because they have depleted their resources on their home planet, 
and the Gaul want it because it's always been part of their empire for centuries, and that they will destroy it before they release it to the Pentagon. Q gets fed up with the bickering and states that they will agree to something or else. This threat does not go over easy with either one of the races. Q then has to spin it as if it was all just another example of the wicked Picard humor. Troy is a little worried about her captain. Q then gives in and allows Picard to regain control. As soon as Picard is back in the driver's seat of his own body, he offers that the Pentagat get the new world in exchange for giving their home world to the Gaul. At first, the Pentagat are upset by this idea, but when reminded that their home world is uninhabitable, they agree. The Gaul state that they will terraform the Pentagat home planet for their needs and agrees as well. Later in Picard's quarters, Q and Picard talk about the recent events. Q admits that Picard's solution was an elegant one, and he is surprised on how well humans do for being nearly blind with only their eyes and ears to help them. Q also tells Picard that he knows that Picard is not alone in his own mind, that there's still a bit of Lucutus in there. He offers to remove it, but Picard refuses because it is a reminder of who he is now and what it costs to get him there. As Q leaves, he tells Picard that he will not agree that humans are more capable than what he gives them credit for. But he does say they are trying harder than he thought. With that, he flashes away. The end. Oh, that wily Q. Still not admitting defeat. Too much ego? Something like that. Yes. Well, so, what'd you think? I thought it was a really good story. I thought the idea of seeing Q actually trying to take over Picard's job to be a very logical scenario, given what we know about the character. So I thought this kind of thing could easily have been a uh, regular episode. Right. TV episode. So I thought the idea was very good. I thought it was well executed. I liked it. Yeah, no, I, I liked it too. And, yeah. and I liked the, uh, you know, the parallel that they were running with. You know, this is very similar to how Picard would have felt during his time as a Borg. Right. Okay, so... I thought it was really good. Right, so th this is happening right after First Contact? Yeah, they said it's about a month after First Contact. A month. Oh, they actually said that. Okay. Right. Okay, cool. I think this is the first time I've ever seen Q in the, the cool gray and black Starfleet uniforms. I think he, um, think yeah. he, looks, he looks dapper. <laughs> looks good, isn't it? Nope. John Delancey... Looks good in that suit. Yeah, of course he wouldn't look that doesn't? good now. Yeah, those are cool uniforms. I do like them. I think I could wear one and, and people would say, hey, he looks pretty cool. I think you have worn one. Yeah, I wore a homemade one that was supposed to look bad. <laughs> okay. So I like the Enterprise, a model of the Enterprise being in Picard's quarters. That makes sense. Uh, Enterprise, Enterprise D. Enterprise yeah. D. So instead of having the Stargazer, which maybe is still sitting in his office... He's got a model of the uh, Enterprise D, so that's kind of cool. Another thing, I think also in his quarters is, oh, one of those, uh, that statue from Ryza. Oh, yeah. That, uh, that he, I guess, was given or something when he had that little adventure with Vash. Right. So, uh, and I think, still think Vash was one of the best 
Picard girlfriends, anti-girlfriends going. She was really, really good. I like the actress that did that. Right. Anyway, but it's nice to see those little extra things in the background. Yeah, where's the flute? I was looking for the flute, too. (laughs) And there's a taller thing, uh, a statue kind of thing on a pedestal. It's tan-colored. That's also in there. And I was looking at that going, does that have any... You know, significance? Or is that just another random kind of artifact that Picard picked up along the way because he's into archaeology? And? I I, I don't know. I'm kind of asking. I I, I don't recognize it from anything. Yeah, it looks kind of like a cow or something. Kind of a cow head on on an upright body. So it's not like a four-legged thing. Right. Um, But yeah, it does kind of look like a cow. Actually, now that I zoomed in, it kind of looks like a a Ferengi head. A Ferengi head? Okay. Yeah, okay. With like some sort of high back collar thing behind it. Oh, maybe a goat. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what no. it is. I don't know what it is either. But obviously, either the writer or the artists or somebody involved in the production put those little nice little touches in there. Right. That would have made sense. Right. No, agreed. Overall, I thought all the artwork of the actors looked spot on. Yeah, they look really good. I mean, even the ones that may not look as much like Delancey, they still look good. And most of them do look like Delancey. And Data, some of the ones with Data, is like, wow, that is like really good. Very spot on. And Jordy, with his, with and his Jordy, new eyeballs. With his new eyeballs and the, uh, you know, the little beard thing going. And Troy with her new face. <laughs> All right, that's, that's not Ooh, nice. ooh, you had to go there. She but does her looks change from from generations to first contact? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, there's no two ways about it. She had a little nip and tuck. I don't know that for sure, but she just looks. Uh, good. yeah. I, I. Anyway. Looking at first contact, I think she probably had a little nip and tuck. <laughs> the face just didn't seem quite as mobile as it used to be. Anyway. So Picard's head just kind of floating over. Q's shoulder. Mm-hmm. It really reminded me of like some X Men comics with when Professor X speaks to them telepathically. Oh, okay. And it would just be Professor X head there, right? And of course, and of course, it's being Professor X even more. Exactly. So. I was kind of wondering if they did that on purpose. <laughs> Maybe that was something the artist was used to and said, "Hey, you know, I know exactly how this should go," and just did it that way. Yeah, it worked. So. Yeah, it worked. We were great. I think Picard took it a little easier than I think he would have. I think he would be trying to fight it, not just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you, you screwed up again, Q. <laughs> well, he was pretty angry at the beginning. But yeah, when he became the head, he seemed to accept his position pretty quickly. Yeah, right. Agreed. And then he was just snarky and giving. I, I liked how he gave a, a few tips. Yeah, and they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Purposely signaling to them that this is not me. Yeah, that was good. That was funny. Yeah. So Picard's solution is elegant, except as I think more about it, it's like, I would have thought that the Pentagent, or pen, Pentagent, well, however you pronounce it, yeah. I would have thought they would have been a little bit more hesitant giving up their home world. Right. I mean, okay, so maybe, I mean, 
so maybe they can't produce food as much or as enough food or something. I, I forgot what exactly what was the problem with their existing planet, but didn't have enough resources. Okay, so you can't mine metals anymore. Okay, well, but you've still got you know a whole civilization's uh, st- structures and uh, religious places and right. all these things. You know that it was yeah. be like I, I I don't think they'd be so willing to give all that up. Right. And the Ganal is like, and I'm going to just level the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. All your structures will be gone. Yeah. And we'll just float around in our gaseous bodies. Exactly. And what, what, were they going to eat it somehow or ingest it somehow? I, f- I forgot what they said exactly, but I don't know. It, it just seemed like they were accepting it a bit too quickly. Right. But, yeah, uh, I would think that there would be another planet out there that they wouldn't have to make this hard, hard choice. Exactly. I mean, given uh, warp drive and stuff, I mean, well, whatever. Nope, I agree the hundred percent. Yeah, but it was good. It was fine. Right. I just think that it's going to cause a war later down. The next <laughs> well, generation of the insect people will be like, "Well, exactly." What? 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 Our home world back. Okay, we have twice as much space. Ah, uh, but we filled all that up now. Oops. <laughs> I guess we're going to take back the planet after all. And it's like, well, hopefully that by that point they realize, hey, we got warp drive. We can go to another planet. Uh, whatever. What do so, you think of the little gaseous people? Uh, I thought they were fine. I, I'm not crazy about their R2-D2 hat, but, you know. <laughs> uh, other than that, I mean, when they were fully gaseous, I thought that made sense. But then when you actually saw a face at that, in that one panel when they were being angry, right. you saw kind of a, an angry face in the gas. It was like, well, okay, fine, whatever. I mean... But come on, if you're gas people, you're probably not going to form faces just so you can non-verbally communicate that you're angry. I think that's what they were doing. I think that's what they were doing. I, I, I agree, but... I no, know. I agree. I just thought it, they looked too much like a lava lamp. <laughs> <laughs> and you notice how they changed colors. Right. So. Yes. You know, so they went, they went from blue, which I guess was their normal state, to kind of a tan or something. When they were getting more angry. And then when they were really angry, they turned red. Anyway. Yep. That yeah. was cute. Lava lamp. Lava lamp. Exactly. How about Q's offer to remove Locutus from his mind? Picard's mind. I thought it was good. I mean, it, that's something that I think he's he would have done in the show. Right. A very, a very kind of like Kirkian thing. Like, I need my pain. My pain is part of me. You know, whatever. Right. Yeah, when he, when he got split into evil Kirk and... Well, that's a good episode. Nice and weak Kirk. Timid Kirk. Timid Kirk. Nice Kirk. A little too nice. So. <laughs> I need my pain. I need my locutus. It's part of what I am. Don't touch it. Yeah, and I thought it was another depiction of how Q isn't such a bad guy. You know, he he does offer it to take it away. Yeah. Even though he caused all this mischief. Yes. I think he just wants to be part of the team. Right. But he wants to lead it, ergo this episode. Which, again, back to what you said originally, I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. I'm better than you, so I should be able to do your job better than you can. Right. And he can't. That's right. That was good. Because you can't use your powers, just change people. No, you have to work with people. 
and you can't be short, so short-tempered. Exactly. Or always jump to forcing people to do things. Like his first reaction was, uh, you guys get along. Right. Or else. Or else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or else I'll use my Q powers on you. Well, even and, though I said and, I wasn't. And his advice to Jordy. Tell yeah. him to do better. Yeah. <laughs> Done. <laughs> well, what a, well, okay, so this creature is used to getting anything he wants by just thinking it. So you're not used to doing things the hard way, right. which is the only option we typically have, human beings. So, anyway. When Q disappears, is there a little, like, ting or something? A little ting, you know, something like that when he, when he goes away? I don't remember from, from the episodes. Uh, like a noise? No. No, he just, it's all completely silent when he, when he flashes gone. Mm, it might make a little foosh sound or something. Well, that's definitely what they're saying here. Or, or a fwash. 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 Uh, yeah, it makes like a shh sound, so... Oh, okay. Well, I guess that's more appropriate. I thought it was more like a ting. Ting? Ting! I think you're, I think you're thinking of genie. No, no. I dream of Well, genie. okay, hold on. Ting. Uh, bewitched goes... Ding, 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 or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Uh... And genie? No, no. Genie's like a spring. Boing. Boing. Yeah. Isn't that right. isn't that like that? Yeah. Right. I remember my sounds, but <laughs> ma- but maybe not in the case of Q. Oh well. In Q, you you hear a ding. I, I thought uh, I'm probably wrong. I always thought it was like a whoosh sound. Okay. Well, that's definitely what this shows. Fwash. Cool. Spell it fwash though. Well, it's closer than ting. Apparently. True. Okay, that's my last comment. All right, same here. Cool. So moving on to our third issue of the day, we Which have... I would like to just say something real quick. Sure. This issue is the whole reason why we're doing the uh, random IDW episode, because I wanted to read this so bad. Okay. Because <laughs> it was the six doctors... So oh, the six doctors. doctors. For the first time. Yes. Oh, it was going to be amazing. It's only half as good as uh, the Doctor Who's, but yes, the six doctors. Right. Yeah, I, I wondered how they were going to bring everybody together just because they're from different time periods and things. With McCoy and Flock. Right. I mean, part. right. I mean, the, the majority of them, they're next-gen characters. but. Right. But especially Flocks, who was so far in the past, I didn't know how they were going to do it exactly. So I think they did a pretty good job. I liked it. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But um, let me begin. So, um, Flesh and Stone is the title. Published date, July 2014. Creative team is uh, writer Scott and David Tipton. Art by Sharp Brothers. Colors by Andrew Elder. Letterer, Neil Yutaki. Editor, Sarah Gatos. Cover, by the Sharp Brothers. Cover colors, by John Rausch. Consultants, Robert Hollander and David Zweig. So I assume that they're doctors or something. Medical people. The cover presents the great doctors of Starfleet. Dr. Pulaski, Dr. McCoy, Dr. Bashir. Dr. Crusher, Dr. Flox, and finally, the Doctor. The holographic practitioner 
formerly of the Starship Voyager. At the bottom of the cover is a gleaming space station high over a brown planet. The story begins on the space station Diamandis 1. Ensign Hava is reporting on the small escape pod traveling at low warp towards the station. Her superior, Commander Travers, brings the station to yellow alert. They discuss where the pod came from and what it may contain. The commander makes his decision and dispatches a runabout to bring the pod on board. Since the station is currently hosting one of the largest Starfleet medical conferences ever held, the commander decides whoever is in the pod will be in the best of hands. A short time later, a runabout containing Dr. Julian Bashir, Dr. Beverly Crusher, and Dr. Catherine Pulaski approach the station. They are there for the conference, but are alarmed when they find the station is broadcasting an emergency distress signal. From the space station, the doctor hails them to tell them to stay away. A level one quarantine is in effect. When the doctor realizes who was on board the runabout, he is delighted and starts briefing them on the situation. All the inhabitants of the space station are incapacitated with a contagion that was recently brought onto the station in a pod craft. The four inhabitants of the pod were rushed to the infirmary. The victims became weak and their skin began to harden and turn into a gray color. Eventually they became paralyzed. Turned to stone, if you will. So far, no one has died. At first they were confident in the large contingent of Starfleet doctors that they would be able to identify the malady and administer a cure. However, confidence turned to despair when no trace of the symptoms were to be found in the medical database. No one had personal experience with this condition. Finally, the doctor tells them the station's long-range scanners have detected four more craft sending similar distress signals and on course for populated worlds. The emergency signals have been sent to those worlds, but if not properly heated, they will fall prey to the same trap. When Dr. Pulaski realizes the doctor is an emergency medical hologram and not a person, she questions the validity of his findings. Bashir and Crusher assure her the EMHs are very competent, and this particular one came back with Voyager and is particularly competent in its programming. Pulaski accepts her colleague's assessment and switches to Miss Marple mode, saying the appearance of the pods is very curious. The fact that no trace of this affliction is in the Starfleet medical database is even more odd. The doctor is already on the case, checking for any anomalies in the medical database that may indicate tampering. He finds them, which eventually leads them to a deleted log from the original USS Enterprise circa 2269. Dr. Leonard McCoy was ship's MO back then, and Crusher happens to know he was still alive recently when he visited Enterprise D on her maiden voyage. Further record checking shows McCoy is indeed alive and living in an agricultural colony on the Veery system. Crusher and her companions travel to Viri to find McCoy and find out what he knows about the contagion. They arrive and are brought to Dr. McCoy's home by a local named Hollander. Hollander has injured his arm, so he was going to the doctor's anyway. 
They meet the elderly doctor, who is in a wheelchair. After admonishing Hollander for yet another arm injury, he and the three Starfleet doctors introduce each other. Dr. Crusher shows McCoy the data on the contagion, including the symptoms, and asks if it looks familiar to him. After some thought, McCoy says indeed it does. McCoy recounts a mission of his back on the Enterprise NCC-1701. They were called to a tiny little colony world called Zeta-8, near the Tholian border, to help with a medical emergency. Dr. McCoy, Dr. Mbega, Nurse Chapel, beam to the surface in protective suits. They meet with the doctor on site named Phlox. It turned out it was THE Dr. Phlox that served on the Enterprise NX-01 for so many years. He was there by chance as part of his retirement wanderings, when the affliction broke out. Since they were between doctors, Phlox stepped in to do what he could for the poor people. The patients had the same symptoms that Dr. Crusher described. With the help of a local trader named Zweg, who was also afflicted but still not paralyzed, they realized a tholian bacteria or virus was likely the root cause of the outbreak. Meanwhile, in space above, Kirk and the Enterprise dealt with three tholian ships that were spooked by the presence of a Federation military vessel near their border. Eventually, with Dr. Phlox and McCoy's team working together, they created an effective antiviral that reversed the effects of the contagion. They asked McCoy for all that he can recall of the details of the antiviral they created, since all information about it has been wiped from the Starfleet medical records. McCoy does one better by handing them his personal medical tricorder. When he retired the first time, he could not part with it, and likely broke many regulations by taking it with him. All the details of the mission are there in its memory banks. Dr. Crusher accepts it gratefully. They bid Dr. McCoy adieu and head back to the station at High Warp. They report to the doctor that they should be back at the station within the hour with the cure. In the meantime, the doctor is very curious as to how the medical records on McCoy's mission to Zeta-8 were erased. He speaks to Commander Travers and comes to the conclusion that the saboteur that erased the memory banks is still on the station. Using the station's internal sensors, he locates one humanoid life form in a shuttle launch bay on the other side of the station from everyone else. The doctor goes there to face the villain. He is shot at at first, and then the saboteur attempts to fire directly at him. Since he is a hologram, he is un the doctor is unaffected. Finally, the saboteur admits to the whole thing. He was paid a lot of credits by the Tholians to pull this off. He is happy to tell all, since he thinks he will escape the station just as the four rigged shuttle warp cores detonate to remove all evidence of his activities. He says the doctor cannot harm him due to his programming. Do no harm and all that. The doctor agrees, then backs up to a control panel where he turns off the shuttle bay's artificial gravity. The saboteur begins to float hopelessly, while the EMH stands there unaffected. When the saboteur floats in the correct position, the doctor turns the artificial gravity back on. 
the saboteur hits his hits the ground with a thud and goes unconscious. Later, Crusher, Bashir, and Pulaski join the doctor and start administering the cure. After the initial test subject quickly turns back to normal. Crusher asks Julian to transmit the details of the cure to the worlds those other mystery pods were heading towards. As Dr. Pulaski and the doctor are administering the cure to more patients, Pulaski wishes aloud that they knew what exactly was going on here. The doctor obliges. Prior to their arrival with the cure, he was able to check out the intruder's communication devices. He traced some of the transmissions to a Tholian political splinter group favoring a rapid expansionist program. The doctor theorizes they intended to release the virus into the Federation worlds near their border to remove obstacles to their moving in and expanding their territory. They paid the saboteur to erase all Starfleet records of earlier experience with the contagion to maximize its effect and cripple Starfleet's response to it. Dr. Pulaski is very impressed with this mere EMH program and regards him with newfound respect. They now like working together so much, the next patient gets a double dose of cure. On the count of three, the end. I don't think they're both giving him the shot. Oh, come on, look at it! They're actually saying... What? Uh, are they saying like one, two, three? Oh, they are. Look at that! They're both shooting him. Mm. <laughs> oh, it, I was speaking of it generically. Oh. <laughs> shooting him. Shooting him. Yeah, yeah. It, it no, is. Right. It is a girl. Yeah, and they are both doing it. They're both. <laughs> now, is it like epoxy? You got two parts you got to put together at the same time? I don't think so. I don't know. See, you, you got two fishes going on. Yeah, no, and they did the countdown. One, two, there you go. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So I did not like Pulaski's characterization in here. I mean, I didn't like her always butting heads with Data, and and I didn't like like her just not trusting the EMH because he's not human or whatever. Uh, I thought she would be past that by now. Okay, but. Definitely Dr. Pulaski was meant to channel McCoy a bit more than Crusher ever was. Right. So there was a surliness to her, a short-tempered to some degree, and definitely a mistrust of newfangled technology. So they were just trying to channel that. But yeah, you'd hope she would be over with it. And you'd also think that she would have come into contact with an EMH before. Right. I mean, are they that rare? I thought they were supposed to be on all the ships. No, they're on all the ships. Yeah. So. But he's the EMH. I mean, all the other EMHs, I could see her saying well, that about. But he is sentient. Oh, I, I completely agree. But didn't they also, didn't Crusher and Bashir say, you know, all the EMHs are good. But that right. one in particular is good. Right. I thought that's what they said. But No, that's what they say. Yeah. No, I, again, I just think it's it's the one character trait I guess she had from her one season on the show. Right. And I guess that's what they had to really go with it. Yeah, so they did. Yep, but I agree with you. You would hope she would have grown beyond that. But A little mistrust of new tech. Newfangled tech. Especially when they're in her territory. So I didn't... I didn't. Uh, in, in some of the expanded universe stuff, they've said that 
one of the programmers of the original EMH was McCoy. And that's why a time or two in, in Voyager and stuff, he'll say stuff like, I'm a doctor, not whatever. You know, mm-hmm. not as much as McCoy did, but right. it is a line he stated a time or two. And supposedly that's because, you know, McCoy was one of his programmers or whatever. Right. So, again, it's expanded universe, so it may or may not be in this continuity, but you would think that, you know, he would at least know who McCoy was more than he does in this, this issue. Right. And I always thought that, as opposed to McCoy being involved directly in programming him, that they took information and characteristics of many Starfleet doctors right. uh, in programming the doctor. But, uh, yeah, that would make even more sense if McCoy was directly involved in the programming. Right. Yeah, because there are times, too, when the Doctor was a little surly at times. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Doctor, I guess you would have to be, you know, at, at times, because people always want to diagnose themselves or think they know best. Right. Yep. And you got to shut that stuff down sometimes. Right. And get on to the real thing going on that I know, because I am the Doctor. And not Doctor Who. No. 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 Not the temporal doctor. The medical doctor. Or as Doctor Who would say, I'm not that kind of doctor. Right. So, what do you think about the overall story? That really the Brashear, Crusher, and Pulaski were pretty much just couriers. (laughs) Um, Now that you brought it up, uh, because you brought that up to me before via text... That's a very good point. And now that you bring it up, that is completely true. Yeah, so the Doctor has all the action in the story. And, yep. And then there's the flashback where McCoy and Phlox are doing all the work. And yep. then the other three Doctors are just transporting it from one person to the – or from one place to the other. Exactly. I mean there's a little bit of leadership stuff going on there. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean if anybody's the leader of the group, it's definitely Crusher. But yeah, I mean – Jeez, the doctor was like all over it. I mean, he was not only doing the medical stuff, but he was doing a lot of data-like stuff, you know, technical analysis and, and researching and doing all these like detective work and stuff. And then the big um, action scene with the with the saboteur. Exactly. He even took out a saboteur. Yep. So, uh, you know, so he was not only a doctor, he was also a technical research person that can detect, uh, you know, tampered computer records. Right, okay, right. didn't know you could do that, but you are a computer, so maybe I, don't know, I guess so. And and then you're you're the sheriff in town, and you're going to take out the bad guy. So I thought I thought he showed amazing flexibility. Right. And it's been a while since I've. Uh, finished Voyager, uh, mm-hmm. watched the last season. Um, but he still has to have his mobile emitter, right? Yet here he doesn't. Well, maybe he doesn't because he's in the station. So they have holographic projectors throughout the whole station? I, I guess. Or maybe that's a detail he just didn't bother worrying about. Right. More like it. Because well, my thing was is that if he has the hol- hollow emitter on his arm, which uh, they never show it. No. Just because the gravity gets turned off, that hollow emitter would want to float around too, which would well, okay. then say his <laughs> body would have to float around, and him turning the, the, the gravity off would, would hinder him as well. But 
I'm fascinated how you're making this sound like it's reality, but um, <laughs> what, I, he's light, right? I mean, he's a hologram. He is, yes, but the but emitter is not. I, I know that, but but how does in normal gravity? How does the emitter not fall to the ground? It's being held by photons. Ah, and ergo, it's still being held by photons. So I mean. I mean, you, you could say it should be floating, but I'm going to say, well, maybe the same thing that keeps it from dropping on the ground when gravity is there is keeping it in place when, um, you know, when the gravity's turned off. Uh, but, you know, he, if he's a construct of light being projected, then I completely see how gravity has no effect on him. I completely see that, or, or no practical effects anyway. Um, and, but it's all academic because he doesn't have a hollow emitter anyway, a portable hollow emitter so right <sighs> or they could have just like they should have always just make a holographic sleeve for it and just tuck it in like a little pocket and then that way you don't have to be broadcasting it everywhere like ooh, look shoot this shoot this. <laughs> <laughs> i agree with you i mean you're you're generating an, a false image anyway why not just generate it so it's over the uh, hollow emitter yeah. exactly yeah but anyways, I still think that he should float when the, the lights go off or the gravity goes off. I, I, I don't think so. He's not, it's light. I mean, and of course, if it is light, it's like, well, how can he pick up things? It's light, you know. How can he interact with a hypo? I mean, it's like, anyway, whatever. And so after he turned off the gravity, uh, do you think he had to go back up to sick bay and put all the people back in their beds because they all floated off? No. Because I think he only did it in the in the shuttle chamber, which, by the way, is a very logical thing if you've got you know ships coming in and out. You know, have the gravity off uh, to be able to turn off gravity in specific parts of the bay. That makes it easier for the ships to get off and, and leave. Right. Unless, of course, they've got their own anti gravity generators, which they must because right. You know, they take off from planets and stuff. I kind of thought it was logical that there would be gravity controls in a uh, in a shuttle bay, personally. But and and I don't I don't think that's for the entire station. I think it's just it's a localized control. But I thought that was a little convenient. If any place should have more fine controls about turning off gravity or, or adjusting gravity, I would think a shuttle bay would be a good spot. But. Yeah, it was kind of convenient. But what was he going to do? I mean, going to start firing back or something? That's just not the doctor's style. Right. Well, off subject, but in Guardians of the Galaxy, Mm -hmm. there's that scene where they're in the control booth inside that prison, and yet they were able to turn the gravity off everywhere except for the little control booth. Yes. That I thought was a little ridiculous. Why, why would you have that functionality? I, I don't know. Now, well, I yeah, can think of a reason why. Riot, riot exactly. Okay. Exactly. Because that's where, that's like the armored control area that, that the control guard is at. Right. Yeah, I guess so. I, I would think, uh, and we've seen this, I've read about this in books. Uh, we might have actually seen it in some other mediums, but the whole idea of being able to adjust the artificial gravity is a very powerful idea. Sure. You know, turn it up, everyone's on the floor, riot over. And I would rather turn it up 
than to turn it off and have them floating around. But personal preference. Right. All right. Good point. I'll, I'll, I'll take back my criticism. Damn it. Damn it, man. Yeah, and if, quite frankly, Gardens of the Galaxy in the movie, I, I enjoy the movie and stuff, but come on. You just can't ana- analyze that too much. No? No. Okay. Although we love to do that. Well, we can do it to Star Trek, right? Oh, heck yeah. We got the review going, baby. Okay. So, pretty handy how McCoy's retirement colony happens to be an hour's flight from the space station, eh? And it just happens to be a Wild West-themed <laughs> colony. Yeah. Well, he's trying to get away from Starfleet, right? So, right. I guess this is somewhere by the Tholian border? Yes. It's yes. The, uh, it's, yeah, it just happens to be there. Yeah. And I guess McCoy just likes the Tholians so much, he'd retire near them. Still within uh, Federation borders. So exactly. He should be fine. No, I just thought it was great that it was Western-themed. I was just like, that is so funny. What, why? Do you think that's appropriate for McCoy? Yeah, that, that the place he wants to retire is a, you know, a dude ranch in space. A dude ranch. <laughs> a place that they've, you know, I mean, because it's not, it's not like it's a real wild west town it, it's a modern no, it's a town colony that, that they're doing a theme so it's basically like a, it's like a theme park it's, it's a resort that that <laughs> has taken the wild west as their theme it's Westworld. Yule right. brenner will be walking out any minute but he was a robot he was a robot yes these don't look like robots these look like no no they, they look they look like the tourists right and then the robots walk out later with the guns yeah i've never watched Westworld. oh really yeah, okay. so that that's the actual plot of the movie? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, Richard Benjamin goes on vacation to Westworld and is supposed to, you know, do the quick draw and then gun down the uh, the bad guy, Yul Brenner, robot. Only he doesn't he doesn't get gunned down and ends up shooting his buddy, the Richard Benjamin's buddy. Huh. And then he goes crap and runs. And then the rest of the uh, rest of the movie is pretty much people, you know, getting killed by uh, robots in various nasty ways. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna make an effort to watch that. Yeah, it wasn't that good a movie, but hey, was seven making it seventy schlock the original before the uh, they are. Yeah. Wow. Oh, nobody has any ideas. New ideas. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, all right. Well, then I like that this was Westworld. <laughs> And that McCoy sits around in Captain Pike's chair. Uh, exactly. Captain Pike. Well, you know, at first I was thinking Captain Pike's chair, and it's like, well, you know, how many different ways are you going to make a a wheelchair? You know? Right. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, fine. It isn't 100% Pike's chair. He doesn't have two little lights. No, it's not exactly it. No, but it's close. Right. That's the same thing. I, as soon as I saw it, Pike, it's Pike. And I really loved the flashback scene and the scene being part of uh, Star Trek Year 4 with, you know, the characters from the animated series. Oh, right! I I really liked that. I thought that was good. So it really kind of dates when when this uh, flashback was supposed to happen. Right. And they have no problem with including some of the animated characters. Yeah. Right. Well, the only... 
Okay, so it's that guy with the multiple hands, right? Yeah, Oryx. Oryx, that, that's his name? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, as soon as I saw him, it was like, wasn't he from the animated series? Hmm. He was. Now, it doesn't have Mariz, which is the, the other communications officer. That's the cat. Right. But, uh, but no. Ahura was on that show, too, so. Right. You know, they, they just traded off duties. Exactly. Yeah. Anyways, I just thought that was cool. Yeah, that is cool. All in all, I really enjoyed this issue. Uh, yeah, I did too. It's kind of a lighthearted issue a little bit, I thought. Yeah, just don't think too much. Right. So, the original outbreak, this was just an accident? Because the traitor has the uh, the Tholian scarf or something? And by the way, if the Tholians can only exist in high temperatures, wouldn't the scarf burn up? Well, whatever. So... So was this a purposeful thing on the Tholian's part originally? Originally, not later, because later it looks like it was definitely purposeful. Was this like some kind of a thing where the Tholians impregnated that scarf to infect that colony and gave it to or traded it to this traitor? Was that purposeful? That, that, that's what they were implying. I mean, because then Kirk and that Tholian have that conversation where he's like, well, surely you didn't do this on purpose, and... That the lean's like, no, of course not. <laughs> okay. Well, that's definitely the idea I got to. Right. So, so then they went ahead and like backed off on this research until some fraction group found the research and resurrected it and started using it as a weapon, weaponizing right. it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Those nasty Tholians. Right. But I did like how the conversation between Kirk and the Tholians mirrored the conversation between Sulu and, and the Tholians in the first issue. You know, they both kind of like knew the other one was, you know, basically calling their bluff on both of them. Right. The Tholians like, oh, yeah, of course, that's, we never meant that. Of course not. Yes, there it is. If somebody's going to call your bluff, it's going to be old Kirk. Damn it. With, yeah, a, just, with a wry little smile on his face. Of all the captains, I, you know, just because I love Enterprise, I mm-hmm. wish they could have somehow incorporated Archer in them <laughs> and not Kirk in them. Because we've, we've seen Kirk in them a million times, but we've never seen Archer in a comic. You are an Enterprise slash Archer fanboy. I just want him, I just want that series to get some sort of just, you know, some sort of... Love. Love, Yes. Come on! It's, it's the Send Enterprise it, it, some it, it love. Space Nine is like the the stepchildren that nobody really likes or acknowledges all that much. Well, Which is why I was really happy that Deep Space Nine is being incorporated into the Q ongoing storyline. Yeah, yeah, I was kind of surprised by that. I like Deep Space Nine. I didn't dislike it, but I, I, you know, I don't like it as much as you do. But I was kind of surprised that they chose that particular setting for this uh, Q Gambit series. It's right. pretty cool. I mean, it looks pretty cool. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I think it looks very interesting. Right. There's a lot of potential there for that story. Yep, yep, and we'll get we'll get more into that next week. Right. But I've heard that the reason why they haven't done an Archer comic is because, for whatever reason, they can't get the rights to Scott Bakula. Really? Right, which you would think that would be part of the original contract when he signed on for the role. Yeah, and really, does he need any more money? He's got another series. It's like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm really surprised 
that... I don't know if that's true. That's just what I read somewhere. Well, and I'm surprised that Paramount would have done that. Right. It seems like a, a pretty big mistake. Well, yeah. I mean, and they seem to get the rights from every other actor. So. And he uses likeness on the novels. I mean, he's on all the covers, and it's it's artwork of, you know, Scott Bakula. So it's not like right. it's a photograph of him. Right. So <laughs> I don't I don't know how true that was. It's just, I'm just saying that's what I heard somewhere. I don't know. Anyways, back to this issue. Um, so were they actually getting turned into stone? So they were actually statues, or just their skin was somehow. I, I think they. I think they said their skin was was stone like. But their organs and stuff was still working just normal. Well, they said their brains were still working, so you'd need blood pumping and all that kind of stuff for your brain to keep working. So I guess. Mm. Okay. Yeah, didn't they say something about? Uh, oh, it must be worse than death or something. Right. Cause you know, they're, they're in there screaming and they can't be heard. Exactly. Yeah. All right. What else you got? Let's see. So. McCoy's mantle, I'm just looking at it right now, and there's all kinds of stuff over it, and I'm just wondering what kind of stuff that I could recognize are up there. There is a woman's picture. Is yeah, that perhaps like Nurse Chapel? Nurse Chapel, or is it Nancy? The, salt, the person the Saul vampire tried to look like. Oh, maybe. I thought it was Nurse Chapel for some reason. Oh, a little, a little un, uh, unfulfilled love going on there, eh? Maybe. Um, I would think it would be his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend or whatever. Right. Or, um, you know, his daughter's. Could be his daughter. Yeah, it could be that. A brunette. That's about as good as I can tell. Right. And then what's that That thing that looks like, you know, kind of like two pyramids stuck together at the bottom, at the base, and then kind of like like mirrors of each other, but then it's, it's a little longer on the bottom? That looks familiar. Um, which... Which one are you looking at? Um, this is okay. So this is around about I don't know, middle of the book or something, and then it's on the left portion of the page. It's a long uh, one, and it shows the fire going, and then the uh, the mantelpiece, and okay. then above that is you know the tricorder and medical instruments, right? Scalpels and stuff, and then upper right hand portion of of the wall. Oh, the the thing that has the little bells on it right yeah is that okay. is, is that something they use like uh in a mock time or something on vulcan or yeah, right. it looks like something like that yeah but it's like why would why would mccoy have that uh, maybe because his he had cox spock's uh katra katra and maybe uh. there when he got his body back i don't know hmm. interesting cool i just yeah that's the thing they would shake and it had the little bells on it Right. <laughs> I, I find it fascinating about McCoy talking about sutures and stitching people up like garments during City on the Edge of Forever, that he would have that kind of a display on the wall, you know, with sutures and right. and scalpels and, and even a like a skull drill, hand right. drill kind of thing. Fascinating. And he has a skull up there, too. He does. a little morbid. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. That's a person. Well, maybe he likes to do Shakespeare. Maybe. No, good point. Yeah, because he, he makes the same barbaric comments in um, Star Trek IV. Oh, about yeah, right. At that time. Right, yeah. 
Cool. That's all I got. All right. So then can we talk about what the whole purpose of this issue was, which is an advertisement for the Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize? Oh, oh, you mean at the back? I don't think that's the main purpose of it, but they did take advantage of it, didn't they? Well, if you look at the even the title page, it was created in partnership with the Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize. I mean, oh, really? Yeah, no. so it's it's on the title page, oh. right underneath consultants. Oh, cool. Well, definitely, I noticed the whole two-page ad at the back. Right, and where, front. where now? Is, is that somebody of significance? That that Asian guy? No. Look at the tricorder marketing thing. I don't. I don't think it is. Okay. No, because if you look at the the first page, the one on the back cover or the back of the front cover, uh, the it, back it of the front cover, and it has the pictures of. All oh right, yeah. Of, I'm assuming they're doctors dressed up as random Star Trek people. Oh, are they? Yeah. Because the one guy looks pretty good at Scotty. He looks just like Scotty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and also, if in the shuttle bay, one of the one of the shuttles, the only one that has a name, is called um, Halamandras. Oh, ooh. okay. Halamandras, what the uh, heck's that? <laughs> well, Trish Halamandras is the senior vice president marketing communications for the X Prize. Oh God. <laughs> okay. So it's kind of cool, though, that uh, that you know they are trying. You know, they did the X Prize a few years back with the uh, you know space spaceship one. Yeah. And then now they're trying to do it again with um, the tricorder. Building a real truck. Exactly right. So, good luck to them. I hope 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 they're able to actually do it. That would be pretty cool to just you know be able to walk around and scan people. Yeah, and, and obviously it won't be as magical, at least the first versions, as Star Trek tricorder. But I mean, they've already got you know those things they put on your fingertip mm-hmm. to measure like your blood pressure or what? It, not not your blood pressure, but. Yeah, a couple different things, things like heart rate, those kind of things. Oxygen level. Yeah, yeah. And then they're talking about the idea through optics of being able to measure your blood sugar maybe. Uh, you know, it's not – that technology isn't here yet, but they're talking about making progress in that area for like people with diabetes and stuff. So obviously there's movement on that kind of thing. Uh, you got all these watches, these smart watches now that are coming with more and more sensors. Um I think on the original, when they made the uh, smartphones, the iPhone, and those kind of things, they didn't, touchscreen technology wasn't quite there, or proximity sensors that could detect when your, your, your ear was close to the phone and to turn off the touchscreen. There's all kinds of technologies that were developed when there was a very specific product in mind. So putting money towards a specific product like this, I think we could go a long way towards actually seeing some of those technologies come into reality, which I think would be way cool. Right. No, I think it's great. I, I, I wish them luck. Yes. Well, definitely having uh, medical information and being able to retrieve it quickly, um, that's all software. I mean, we've got all the hardware pieces for that, so that would be cool. Um but it's all the sensor stuff. That right. would be that would be the trick, right? Yeah, and it seems that they're doing they're trying to make uh, like hypo sprays and things like that as well. It's not just oh. trying. Hmm. 
Well, so. let's not get into it because it, we've already gone for pretty long. But sure. I, I'd, I'd like to know what the heck a hypo spray really is. I mean, yeah, so it goes through through fabric or anything, and it doesn't inject you. I mean, with like a metal needle or something, yet it gets the medicine into you. So I kind of like to know what's that supposed to be. Right. Do you know? Uh, nope. I just thought it somehow did it with air, but never really understood. Right. Maybe it's like a little tiny transporter and it just transports it straight into your body. Oh. So it'd be more like a... As opposed to a... <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah. Don't know. I just I always assumed that it was some sort of like pushed it in through air somehow. Yeah, that's from the sound. It kind of makes it sound like that, doesn't it? Right. Anyway, yep. Cool. So, anyways, good luck to them. Yes. May they do well and bring yet another handy technology into reality. I'm assuming they probably get a cut of the sales for the issue. So, I think I've done my part. Bought the issue. <laughs> 10 cents or whatever they get. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, we'll close up and be back next week with Ongoing. Oh, yes, to see what else happens with the Q Gambit. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you later on the review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at starttcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.